Welcome to Crossroads, where we are in a teaching series called The One Thing. That title comes from some advice Jesus gave his friend Martha when she was coming unraveled from stress and worry, and she happened to unload on Jesus. Martha blamed her outburst on her sister Mary, who was socializing with the dinner guests and not really helping with the meal prep. The story's found in Luke 10. And our anchor verse for the series is verses 41 and 42, where Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and worried about many things. There's need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken from her. Well, week one, we explored how anxiety itself might be a message from the soul. It's inviting us to examine the unmet needs and the unhealed places in our lives. Week two, we explored how generosity is a form of soul care that actually frees us from financial worry. And then this week, I'm walking us through the emotional landscape of grief and the soul care we need in times of deep loss. Perhaps the emotion we fear the most in life is grief. The hardest thing about grief is that we live in a culture where it's not okay to talk about it. Many of you are already thinking that a series about stress and worry is good Money, please, yes, I could use a life hack for consumer debt and my bulging storage unit. Toxic relationships, it's a negative topic, but please do teach me how to silence the critics and the judges who stress me out. But grief, do we really have to go there? Research shows that there are two emotions we run from. We run from shame and we also run from grief because it's about letting go and having to experience sadness. I actually ran from the subject last week. And this is a funny story, ironic really. Ryan Howell asked me which topic in this series I'd like to teach on. And I said grief and loss, but I want to broaden the scope and I want to call it change. We are in rapid fire change, most of which is involving loss. We have the pandemic, the social, the racial reckoning, schools are closed, business models are pivoting fast or failing, church is even weird. And change involves loss. And I think that change would engage people better right now. And Ryan was flexible, said, sounds good. Change is a stressor, take it on. And then as I was studying for this message, I realized I had just run from the subject of grief because it would be easier and more fun for me to talk about change. It's easier for me emotionally. In the topic of change, there is positive energy. I actually like change. I wish everyone liked it. I think the ability to accept and grow through change is an essential component of our spiritual health. I have jokes. I have funny stories about how we resist change. And we could laugh together at ourselves and we could make change fun. People resist change for sure, but research shows we run from grief. And if you choose to be present with yourself in grief, you're in what Dr. Brene Brown calls a rumble with one of life's most difficult experiences. Grief is not a dance. It's not a climb every mountain. It's not an adventure trip. It's a rumble and it's hard because to rumble with grief, we have to go deep inside our own soul and kind of pull apart the emotions and understand how if we don't reckon with the feelings, they will come to define us and even write our stories for us. As hard as it is to rumble with grief, it's harder to live the life that you will be left with if you don't learn how to rumble with grief. So we run from grief because it's hard. We also run because it's complicated, because everyone experiences it differently. So we lack the shared understanding and the words to talk about grief. 
But what do our shared experiences of grief look like? And how do we put words around it so we can talk about it in a culture that says, hey, we've got no time for you to be sad. You're going through a divorce? That's tough. Suck it up. You got to get to work. You're mourning the death of someone that you love? You've got three months. You've got grief about something that you can't see or touch? It's not an illness or a death or a job loss. It's having to let go of a dream or an expectation. We call that ambiguous grief. And people in this culture will give you an hour for that. And most people won't even give you an hour. They don't even want to hear about it. You're African-American or you're Native American. You're swimming in a cultural indifference to your devastating losses over centuries. The civil rights movement happened in the 60s and you feel the pressure from this culture to move on and let it go. The Clippers coach, Doc Rivers, put it so poignantly in August. He said, it's amazing why we keep loving this country and this country does not love us back. That's the voice of heartache and grief. So here are some questions for us. Have you ever downplayed your pain because you don't want to be perceived as taking too long to heal? Or because you don't want to depress other people any longer with your saga of sorrow? Have you ever listened to someone's story of grief and tried to redirect them to the bright side of things? Have you ever wanted to redirect someone and gritted your teeth and hid your impatience with how long it's taking this person to heal and move on? Well, you are not crazy or hard-hearted if you said yes. We don't tolerate grief in other people because we haven't done our own work around grief. We're just doing the best we can but it's too hard for me to be with you in your grief because if I take my thumb out of the hole in this heart, I may never stop crying. But we don't take time to ask, why is it so hard for me to be around others in pain? Do I have some things I need to work on? And we do need to do the work because we can't step into the life of freedom that Jesus offers without becoming a master at the emotions that come with suffering, loss, and injustice. And so I'm gonna talk about this. And I'll share some things from the research of Dr. Brene Brown and give us some common language to rally around. And then we'll integrate this with some Bible wisdom and we'll see how we can apply it in our everyday soul work. So what is grief? Grief emerged from the Daring Way research with three core pieces. The first is loss. Grief is about a deep sense of loss. Loss is felt when something we knew and loved, we counted on, we believed in is gone. There's a hole there and we don't know what to do with it, how to fill it up or how to get rid of it. What we don't understand is the fact that until that loss is recognized and honored and given the quality of attention, it will continue to grow. And so the first thing about grief is that there's a loss, something we don't have access to anymore. The second thing is a longing. Grief produces a longing for something we can't even put our finger on. And the longing can come out of anywhere at any time. Longing is not conscious wanting, it's involuntary. It's an involuntary yearning for wholeness, for understanding, for meaning, for the opportunity to regain or even simply touch what we have lost. I live in Loveland, Colorado, and west of us is the Big Thompson Canyon. It's the gateway to Rocky Mountain National Park. And in the 70s, my grandparents built a home in the canyon. 
My grandpa died suddenly in his 50s, but my grandma made that place her home. And I spent a lot of time there with her. And she was one of the most important people in my life. And when I drive the canyon from Loveland to Estes Park on Highway 34, I pass that turnoff and bridge that leads to grandma's house, and I'm overcome with longing for the sounds of the river at night, the forest smells, her garden, her food. I heard an illustration once that grief is like a surfboard. You can be on top of it, riding the waves of life, and then in the next moment, you're hit by a wave of nostalgia that aches in every cell of your being. Do you know that ache, that longing? Well, it's part of grief, along with loss. The last part is feeling lost. And feeling lost includes feeling physically, emotionally, or spiritually lost. You have to reorient yourself to a new environment or a new identity. I remember when our child, Sarah, our oldest, went off to college. All six of us drove to Boulder and moved her into the dorm. And then we went to our last supper together on Pearl Street, feeling like the world had stopped turning on its axis. And oh, the hugs and the crying as we left her there and drove away and the quiet drive home in the dark, no Sarah in the car, just Dave and me and three girls, all wondering who's in charge of this family now. Sisters were fighting in the back seat about her room and how long they'd have to wait before they could take it over. And then there was that text before we went to sleep. See you tomorrow night, mom and dad. I forgot some stuff at the house. What are we having for dinner? But seriously, if I had said to someone, I'm really sad about my daughter leaving for college, which is a happy and privileged thing, I would feel weird. But truthfully, sometimes we have to reorient ourselves to the world or even to our own identity after a loss, which is what happens when you actually lose a child or a pregnancy and your primary identity was as a parent. What's your identity now? What happens when you served in the military? You were a soldier or a warrior and you come back after injury or a failed or aborted campaign and your place in something important is now gone. Or you built a business or a nonprofit and it's your life's work. What happens to you when you retire? Grief is a mixture of feeling lost, of longing, and of loss. Something is missing. And if we don't attend to the feelings, they will grow and they will influence the direction of our lives without us even realizing it. Simply understanding that these are the moments of your own soul in grief and loss will help you to be present to yourself and to others who are grieving, and it'll help stop the madness of us not being available to each other because we're on the run from grief. So loss, longing, feeling lost, we want to pay attention to these movements in our own souls. So for some Bible wisdom, let's talk about Job's rumble with grief. Job's story is in the Old Testament of the Hebrew Bible. It's considered a literary masterpiece in its own right, aside from the Jewish and Christian understanding that it's inspired scripture, and so it's part of God's message to us. The book of Job is part of a collection of scripture called Wisdom Writings. It's alongside the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. So Job begins with a strange story. It takes place up in the heavens, which are described somewhat like a heavenly command center. And God is there with angelic creatures. And God's bragging about the life of this one exceptional human being on earth, Job. And then one of these angelic creatures interrupts the assembly. And he's referred to in Hebrew as the Satan. 
The word's literally a title, which means the one who is opposed. And the Satan questions the way God is running the world and suggests that if God would take away the things that make Job happy, we would see his true colors. We'd see that Job is not really a faithful and free partner to God, that he's just working the system to get what he wants. So God agrees to the experiment, and the Satan unleashes disaster in Job's life, and Job loses everyone and everything that he cares about. Now, this is a long book, as the Bible goes, 42 chapters, and the whole thing is a poem. But we can peek in and highlight the big moments in Job's rumble with grief. First of all, Job loses confidence in a well-ordered world in which doing good leads to well-being, and he is overwhelmed with longing for the good old days. They're over now, and they must be buried and grieved. There's an excerpt in Job 29 where he expresses this. He says, How I long for the months gone by, were the days when God watched over me and his lamp shone on my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. Oh, for the days when I was in my prime, when God's intimate friendship blessed my house, when the Almighty was still with me and my children were around me. Job has endured unimaginable loss. Although the California and Oregon fires put a picture in my mind of such devastation, it's the loss of your home, your animals, your land, your soulmate, and your children in a raging wildfire. Such loss can cause a person who knows the universal love of God to question their sanity and cause a person who's never been interested in faith to wonder if they could have prevented all this if they had been more in tune with God. We can hear the longing. We talked about it earlier. He says, oh, for the days when God was my friend and my children were near. Then the second thing to notice in Job's story is that unbridled complaint and lament are appropriate, and they should be voiced seriously before God. It cannot be answered simplistically. If the Bible is God's message to us, one thing we know for sure, not only from Job, but from every witness, every story, even Jesus himself, unbridled complaint and lament are part of a healthy spirituality. You don't need to censor yourself or fear that your honesty will be punished. And we need more people to understand this, more people who will lament alongside us without judgment. Listen to some of Job's lament. It's in Job chapter 30. He says, and now my life ebbs away. Days of suffering grip me. Night pierces my bones. My gnawing pains never rest. In his great power, God becomes like clothing to me. He binds me like the neck of my garment. He throws me into the mud, and I'm reduced to dust and ashes. I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look away. One thing we have in this modern era is the hope of community. People can lament together. Lament is praying out of your painful emotions, and it can be done with other people, or alone, as Job eventually was, because his friends hadn't done their grief work. We can do more because we know more. We have each other. Another thing that Job mirrors for us is trust and what that feels like in the face of devastating loss. Job still trusts that a responsible life should yield a good outcome. And he holds his consistent faith alongside the brutal circumstances of a lived reality. That's the rumble. He's rumbling with the question, is God's faithfulness for real? Job knows that his is. He's an eyewitness and the first expert in his own life, 
as we can be if we choose to accept the honor and the freedom of that that God gives us. He knows his faithfulness is genuine, but it's God's, and that hurts. In Job 31, he says, For what is our lot from God above and our heritage from the Almighty on high? Is it not ruin, ruin for the wicked, disaster for those who do wrong? Does he not see my ways and count my every step? Job is fully trusted in God. He's not celebrated the ruin of his enemies or taken his security from money or worshiped the sun and the moon. And this is interesting. He even says he's not abused the land. And he says, God, if I have, then let the thorns take over what I have left. I would feel more comfortable discovering that I deserved all this than wondering what the hell is going on down here. And this is that feeling of being lost that we talked about. When you believe in the spiritual laws of abundant life and you align your thinking and behavior with wisdom out of love for God and your neighbor, and then you experience huge loss. It's very disorienting. Or on the flip side, when something bad happens to a person who has not centered their life in faith, they wonder if the harm has been done by them or it's a consequence of not having developed that life of faith. And so feelings of regret and disorientation flood our soul. Now, the next and final movement is a surprise. God speaks, and it's not what we expect God to say. We're used to the compassionate attention of Jesus, stopping to feed hungry people, healing the sick. But God in this scene is very different personality. God comes in the form of a great storm cloud. He doesn't answer Job's questions. He doesn't offer him pastoral care. Unlike Jesus, God appears to show no compassion. He does something very different. He takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe and shows him how grand the world is and asks him if he is capable of running it or even understanding it. He shows Job great detail and beauty in the world, things that we see every day, but we don't understand at all. God does. God pays attention to the art and the operations of the universe in our personal world, but also into endless realms that we'll never encounter. I call this movement in the story when God changed the subject. He changes the subject and speaks and invites Job back to the wonder of God who does not conform to our limited categories of explanation and meaning. And this is good medicine for Job. It's like going on a wilderness trip and starting to feel like yourself again. All the noise in your head slowly quiets down and the voices of others just go away. Your own inner critic even gives up the fight because these voices are no match for God's presence in the presence of the Northern lights or ocean waves or Alpine meadows. And so in a grace-filled moment, Job's quiet, and he is at peace in God's presence, and all his resistance and anger has evaporated, and he says, I am of small account. I'll say no more. And here's where it gets really interesting. God won't leave him there in that humility. God shows him two magnificent creatures and brags about how great they are. We could picture a sea monster and an elephant, maybe. They're glorious, they're dangerous. And God says, I made these beasts as I made you. Like the lioness and the whale and the grizzlies and the great creatures, these are a model for Job. Like them, Job has strength and power for generating life. He has regal qualities. He's a free creature who's nearly a partner, nearly equal with God. Like the most wise and powerful wild animals, Job can respond to his loss with courage and dignity. 
The emotional quality of this part of the story poem is worth our attention. Job is finally let go and forgiven God and is reduced to silence. But God won't let him shrink away and reminds him that he's meant for more. More than being wound up tight as a drum around his own philosophical questions. He's made for more freedom and creativity and for using his power to generate new life after loss. And in this moment, along the road of genuine grief, Job transcends the spirituality of a young man and he becomes a worthy partner to the God of his life. So let's talk about everyday soul care when we're rumbling with grief and loss. The first thing is to pay attention to your inner life. We've talked about what is going on inside when we're rumbling with grief. The three foundational elements of grief that are loss, longing, and feeling lost. You can be the witness and you can be the guardian of your own inner space. As Jesus put it, who wants to gain the whole world but lose track of their own soul? The opposite of conscious participation in our own inner life is unconsciousness. Unconsciousness is being absent to yourself. Jesus's compliment to Mary is that she paid attention to interior things, to her true self, to the things she enjoys, to the things that make her sad. Jesus complimented Mary for functioning in an awareness of the Christ presence in her and for trusting that presence. Jesus saw that as treating herself with the same love and honor that God has for all creatures. It's the same lesson we saw Job learn. Ways to do this every day include journaling about your loss, longing, or feeling lost, talking about it out loud, either with yourself or directed to God in prayer. You can do it when you walk, you hike, you drive in the mountains, talking about your grief with a spiritual friend or a therapist, reading a book like Brene Brown's Rising Strong, where she'll walk you through the steps for reckoning with these emotions, for rumbling with grief. Next time a Rising Strong Intensive is offered here at Crossroads, you could sign up. But I don't want you to wait for a class and until you finish a book. As much as I believe in those things, I think it's more important to begin an everyday practice of paying attention to your inner life. And then the second thing is to pay attention to the movement of God in the events of your life. When we accept the present moment, we will eventually be brought back to the wonder and joy of life by God. Psalm 40 describes what it looks like when the tide turns like this. The psalmist writes, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. This psalmist must have known Job's story. They say that consciousness begets consciousness, that one person who's paid attention to their soul in grief and is attuned to that one thing is then a shining light for others. And that's what happened with Jesus and Mary and Martha. He didn't mean to insult Martha with be more like your sister, but he did hold up a mirror to Martha and he said, look at yourself. You're in pain. Wholeness is easier, and your sister is on that path, and you can be too. If you know someone who is free and confident, like Mary or Jesus, spending time with them will rub off on you. When a barely burning log is nestled up against the brilliant orange glowing embers, 
a new fire catches on. The words of inspired scripture can also be a spiritual companion. The poet from Psalm 40 is like that for me. These words remind us to watch for the moments of wonder, which are in effect God changing the subject and transporting our lives back into joy. This song is called Take Courage. And uh, it's all about uh, being in the waiting and giving time to pay attention to our souls, to that inner part of our life, and also to the outer part, to the big movements of God in the events of our lives. So enjoy this song, and I hope you find the space in your life to practice some of this application in the coming week.